seen during translation in prokaryotes will be N-formylmethionine. Also in translation in the mitochondria. So we have a special tRNA, F-met tRNA, that is recognized differently by the ribosome. So this means in prokaryotes we will have two species of tRNAs, okay, for methionine. Two tRNAs for methionine in prokaryotes and in the mitochondria. One will recognize, uh, will bring formal methionine, it will recognize the first AUG. And then the other tRNA will recognize internal AUGs and just bring plain methionine. Good? Right. So, in prokaryotes and in the mitochondria of eukaryotes, we have formulated methionine, the first codon. Formulated methionine is brought in for that first AUG, and we have normal methionine tRNA for internal codons. So normal methionine is brought in for internal codons. For eukaryotes, we do not have FMET TNA. We do not use formulated methionine. We use a special methionine that is not formulated. Good? For now, just know that we use a type of methionine that is special, is different from the other methionine. It is not formulated, however, it is special for the first codon, the first AUG. And then for internal AUGs, we use normal methionine. So the normal methionine tRNA for eukaryotes will recognize internal AUGs. It's only in prokaryotes and in the mitochondria of eukaryotes that we have formulated methionine in the first AUG, when we read the first AUG. And that formula methionine, or that for uh, prokaryotes, or special methionine for eukaryotes, helps to initiate translation. So we want to start translation. The ribosome comes and it gets to the messenger RNA. It gets to the messenger RNA. We have to have correct alignment. The ribosome has to be able to recognize where you have the AUG on the messenger RNA. So this big structure here, this whole thing here, is the small subunit of the ribosome. For prokaryotic organisms, prokaryotic organisms on their messenger RNA, they have a special sequence close to the AUG. So this is the AUG, the first AUG. Close to the AUG, we have a special sequence called Shindalgano sequence. Shindalgano sequence. And the, the ribosome of prokaryotes, prokaryotic ribosomes, have a sequence on their ribosomal RNA that is complementary to the Shindalgano sequence. So once the ribosome comes to the messenger RNA, it gets to the messenger RNA, it binds, there's binding at that binding site, the ribosome will scan the messenger RNA until it gets to the Shindalgano sequence and you will have base pairing between the basis of the Shindalgano sequence and this basis on the ribo ribosomal RNA of your small ribosome. And once there's that base pairing, the ribosome will now say, yes, I've reached where 
I was going. I was looking for AUG. AUG is very nearby. It will relax. And it will know that it's ready to start translation. So that is what happens in prokaryotes. What about eukaryotes? We do not have Shindalgano sequence. Eukaryotic organisms do not have Shindalgano sequence. So how will the ribosome recognize that it has reached the AUG for eukaryotic organisms? You remember, Dr. Martins told you about the capping. So when you are, when you are processing the messenger RNA, you have to cap the five prime end and you have to add the polyethyls, polyadenylation, to the three prime end. One of the value, the use of that cap is to help to guide the ribosome. So once the ribosome comes and it gets to the messenger RNA, it will scan until it gets to the five prime cap. When it gets to the five prime cap for eukaryotes, it says, yes, this is where I'm going. It stops because it knows that the AUG is very close to the five prime cap in eukaryotic organisms. Good? So we are ready to go on with translation to synthesize the protein. So we also need initiation factors, like I said. So this, what we are seeing here is prokaryotic, um, in a prokaryotic cell because this is F-met, F-methionine. So this tRNA, charged tRNA, brings in the F-methionine. Okay? That is the first that recognizes the start codon. And you have your ribosome. It's bound. It has recognized the Shindalgano sequence, and it scans the messenger RNA until it gets to AUG, and it stops there. And once the ribosome stops at the AUG, the the um, tRNA, charged tRNA that is carrying F-methionine, comes into the P site, comes into the P site, and this is what is called the 30S initiation complex, the complex of this ribosome, this ribosome with the tRNA at the AUG here. This is the 30S initiation complex. Okay? Initiation factors bring this tRNA, bring all these things together. And once that happens, we have the large subunit will now come and look for the small subunit. Okay? The la large subunit comes in, looks for this small subunit, and it binds. And in the process, we have the cleavage, we have the cleavage of GTP from initiation factor to GTP. Good? Because in the initiation factor 2 GTP okay, helps, to bring the, uh, helps to bring the initiator tRNA, this tRNA, to the small ribosome. Initiation factor 2 GTP. It brings this tRNA here to form this 30S complex. And once this large subunit comes in, there's cleavage of the GTP. And there's plenty of energy now because GTP is cleaved cleavage of the GTP and the release of the initiation factors and your large subunit will bind to the small subunit and this will form the 70S initiation complex. So we are ready to synthesize proteins. Ready to syn syn synthesize proteins. So this whole process is called initiation. During translation, this is what happens in initiation. So when we have this, after you have the 70S initiation complex, you now have, you, now, you only have FMET. F-methionine bound to the tRNA. You want to bring other amino acids and attach it to F-met, link the amino acids by the peptide bond and make it longer to have a long polypeptide that will eventually become a protein to serve a biological function. So we are now at elongation. At elongation, elongation factor 2 GTP, EFTUGTP, will bring the appropriate charged tRNA depending on the codon on your messenger RNA. Remember, UUU, 
you don't have to remember that, okay? In an exam, we'll give you genetic code. But it's so easy to remember that UUU codes for phenylalanine. So UUU is here, right here. Okay, it codes for phenylalanine. So the appropriately charged tRNA carrying phenylalanine will be recognized by elongation factor 2 GTP. It brings it in into the A site. Once it brings phenylalanine on this tRNA into the A site, okay, there will be binding hydrogen bond between the anticodon on your tRNA and the codon on your messenger RNA. Once that happens, remember, I said your large subunit has peptidyl transferase activity. So this is the importance. This is where the importance of the peptidyl transferase activity will come into play. The large subunit acts, acts as a, an enzyme. So it's called a ribozyme. Ribozyme. Because of that peptidyl transferase activity. So with the peptidyl transferase activity on your large subunit, there is the, the formation of your peptide bond between this FMET and this phenylalanine. So the phenylalanine remains on this tRNA and the peptidyl transferase activity, the ribozyme that is on your large subunit will form a peptide bond between the FMET and your phenylalanine. It forms a peptide bond between your FMET and your phenylalanine. So once that happens, that means the tRNA on the A site is now carrying this, uh, this dipeptide that we see here. It's carrying the dipeptide here. So what happens next? Your translation machinery, which is your ribosome, it will move along the messenger RNA and go to the next codon. No overlap, no punctuation, no comma. It goes to the next codon. It goes to the next one, which is AAG. And once it moves to the next codon, once this ribosome moves to the next codon, that means this one will now be in the P site, and this one, this which is not carrying any amino acid, will now move to the E site and exit. Okay? That is what we'll see in the next slide. But remember that the ribosome activity is possible because of the peptidyl transferase activity that we have on the large subunit on the 50S ribosome. Okay? It acts as a ribosome. Yes. Okay. The question, the peptidyl transferase activity, is it for only um, the first amino acid, FMET, and the next, in, uh, the next one, phenylalanine, or is it for every amino acid that comes in? It's for every amino acid that comes in. Uh, when the amino acid comes in, you know you want to make the polypeptide longer. Good? So you have one amino acid, you have another amino acid. As the amino acids are being brought in, you have to you form the peptide bond. So that peptidyl transferase activity helps to form that peptide bond linking the amino acid you have in your polypeptides which make up the protein. Right. So, elongation factor G, GTP, it will now facilitate the movement of the ribosome to the next three nucleotides. To the next three nucleotides. So the ribosome will move to the next three nucleotides Okay, so that this tRNA that is carrying the growing polypeptide chain is in the P site. The, the tRNA that is not carrying any amino acid is now in the E site. It will exit from the E site. This one will exit from the E site. And then another tRNA having the appropriate um, 
anticodon will be recognized and brought in into the A site. It's brought into the A site. The ribozyme activity peptidyl transferase will facilitate the formation of the peptide bond and the, the, the uh, peptide will be growing, the polypeptide. It will be growing. It will be adding more amino acids, more protein. It will be adding them on and on and on. So that's how the ribosome will be reading the messenger RNA. Three nucleotides at a time. It goes, peptide bond is formed, and your polypeptide grows longer and longer as shown here. So the poly polypeptide is growing longer and longer as we're adding more. And until the ribosome, so translocation will keep going on. The elongation factor G GTP that brings in, that facilitates the movement of your ribosome in prokaryotes is called elongation factor 2. Okay? It's called EF2 in eukaryotes. Yeah, there's a little difference between eukaryotes and prokaryotes. And you can capitalize on this difference when you are designing your medication. Good? There's a little difference. EFG in prokaryotes, EF2 in in eukaryotes. So if this were to be a eukaryotic organism, it would be EF2GTP. But in prokaryotes, it's EFGGTP that helps in translocation, moving the ribosome to the next codon. So we go on to the next codon. Our polypeptide is growing longer and longer. And then the, 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 the ribosome gets to UAA. You are gone, UAA, one of those top codons. There is no corresponding tRNA for any of the three stop codons. There's no tRNA for the three stop codons. So what will happen once the translation machinery gets to the stop codon, okay, we will have the, the release factor. Release factor will come in. A special protein called release factor will come in. Okay? It comes in into the A site. And the presence of that release factor in the A site will mean that there will be cleavage, cleavage of this bond that is linking this arginine to the tRNA. It will be cleaved. And once it's cleaved, the polypeptide will exit the ribosome through the exit tunnel. The two ribosomes, large ribosome and small ribosome, will be released. The tRNA is released, and this is your complete uh, polypeptide or peptide. This is your complete peptide, as the case may be. If it's longer, 50 or more uh, amino acids, you call it a polypeptide. Good? So, that means translation is complete. So, this is what happens at termination. So, we have release factor 3 G, uh, GTP will be cleaved to form release factor GDP, 3 GDP. Okay? So, release factor special protein comes into the A site, and that's that is when we get to the termination codon. So that, that is what happens. Remember this uh, EFG and EF2 in prokaryotes and in eukaryotes for translocation. So I've explained this. You already know that UAA, UAG, and UGA are stop codons. So this is just explaining what I just said, that the peptidyl transferase activity will, will take place when you have the release factor coming into the A site, and you have the release of the ribosome, the dissociation of the two ribosome subunits, and so on and so forth. This diagram is showing us, or this electron micrograph, is showing us that transcription and translation are coupled in prokaryotes. That means at the same time we are transcribing, 
making our messenger RNA, we can also be translating the messenger RNA into our polypeptide. So right here, this straight thing you see here is your DNA molecule. If your DNA molecule is being transcribed to give you your messenger RNA. And these small black dots, these small black dots are ribosomes that are translating the messenger RNA that is being synthesized. So we are seeing different ribosomes, okay? Different RNAs, sorry, different RNAs having ribosomes translating them and at, the, at the same time that transcription is taking place. So transcription and translation is coupled. So this is what is called a polysome or a poly ribosome, okay? Polysome, polyribosome, several ribosomes translating the messenger RNA. We'll see it again in the next slide. Okay? Polyribosome or polysome. Several ribosomes. This is the messenger RNA running from the five prime end to the three prime end. So many ribosomes are, are translating at the same time. This is what is called a polysome or a polyribosome polyribosome. So once the protein is being translated, okay, we are linking the amino acids together. tRNA is bringing them, peptide transferase activity or the ribozyme, ribozyme is forming the peptide bond. Proteins have to fold correctly to be able to carry out their biological activity. Okay? Think about the protein. Think about myoglobin. Think about myoglobin. Think about the structure of myoglobin. Think about hemoglobin, okay, that have four subunits. All the, the different polypeptides in hemoglobin, they have to fold pro appropriately, okay? In myoglobin, or different proteins. If you talk about insulin, talk about different hormones, luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormones, immunoglobulins, okay? Your, some proteins that are involved in signal transduction, okay? Some proteins that are involved in blood clotting, they have to fold appropriately to be able to carry out their biological activity. And sometimes these proteins, during translation, they have to be guided. If you don't guide them, they fold indiscriminately. Okay? They fold indiscriminately. Just, they are just like young, young, you know, young boys, young girls, when they are very young. Eh? Sometimes you have to guide them so they don't have indiscriminate relationships. Good? Okay, so this is what the chaperone is doing, okay? The chaperone, the chaperone is guiding the protein so that it does not fold indiscriminately. So it folds appropriately so it can carry out its biological activity, okay? So the chaperone, so we see some chaperones here. Once we have the ribosome, the ribosome is translating the messenger RNA, Okay, making the polypeptide, as the polypeptide is growing longer and longer, the chaperone comes in and says, okay, you can fold here, don't fold here. It does that, it guides the protein so that the protein folds properly to get the right conformation to be able to carry out its biological activity. Good, so that is the function of the chaperones. So, let's look again at some differences between, in translation between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Remember that in eukaryotes, the first methionine is not formulated. However, it's a special methionine. Prokaryotes have polycystrons. Polycystrons. Have you heard about the lac operon? Lac operon. Lac operon in, in E. coli, for example, where you have different genes. One that codes for beta-galactosidase and permease and transacetylase on the same single messenger RNA. You have three genes. So you say it's polycystronic. But eukaryotes are monocystronic. One gene at a time. Good? One gene at a time. Monocystronic. Okay? 
prokaryotes can select an internal AUG to start translation. So you have your long messenger RNA, you have AUG here, you have another AUG here, you have AUG here, and some nucleotides, some codons, AUG. A prokaryote can decide to start translation from this first AUG here, or it can use an internal AUG here to start translation depending on the protein it wants to produce at that particular time. But eukaryotes typically start translation the first AUG because the first AUG is typically close to the cap, the five prime cap. Good? Right. In prokaryotes, transcription and translation, those processes are coupled. In eukaryotes, it's not coupled. Remember, eukaryotes, we have membrane, the nuclear membrane, separating the nucleus from the cytosol. Okay? That means when we have transcription taking place in the nucleus, the messenger RNA, once it's capped and polyadenylated, it has to be transported through the nuclear membrane, through the nuclear pore, into the cytosol, where the ribosome is waiting to carry out translation. So in eukaryotes, transcription and translation is not coupled. Methionine is not found as the first amino acid in most matured protein because after translation, there's what is called post-translational modification. Post-translational modification. And during post-translational modification, one thing that may happen is that the methionine, that first amino acid, may be cleaved off. Okay? That is one type of post-translational modification. To name the, the peptide that is formed, Okay, you can name the peptide. For example, you have uh, a peptide having, in this example here, we have three amino acids, proline, arginine, glycine, these three. Okay, the naming convention, you don't know the name of the polypeptide. What you do, you start from the N-terminal. In this example, the N-terminal, we have proline, proline, followed by arginine, followed by glycine. So, in naming it, if you do not know the name of the polypeptide, what you do, you say prolil. Instead of the I-N-E, you put a Y-L. A Y-L. And then the second one, so you are starting from the N-terminal. The second one, you say arginyl. Instead of arginine, instead of I-N-E at the end of arginine, you put a Y-L, arginyl. Okay? So if you tell me prolil, arginyl. And the last one at the C-terminal end, in this example, is glycine. Glycine. Do not change the I-N-E for the last one. Whatever you have on the last one, leave it as it is. So if you say prolil, arginyl, glycine, I know you are talking about a peptide. And I know you are telling me that these three amino acids are linked together by peptide bond. And the first one is proline, followed by arginine, followed by glycine. If you tell me proline, arginine, glycine. You may be talking about three different amino acids that don't have anything to do with one another. But if you say prolyl, arginyl, glycine, we know they are linked together by the peptide bond. Okay? And if you are given the genetic code, you can predict the sequence of the messenger RNA. If you are given the genetic code, you should be able to predict the sequence. So, if you are given a sequence of nucleotides, these two, one, you know which is the five prime end without being told, you know that this is the five prime end and this is the three prime end. This is the five prime end 
and this is the three prime end. Unless you are told otherwise, always know that this is the five prime end and this is the three prime end. And of these two, one of them is DNA and one is RNA. RNA, you know that one is RNA because it has use. So you know that this is DNA and this is RNA. RNA because it, because it has use. Good? All right. And you should be able to write the complementary sequence to the DNA. The complementary sequence to the DNA. G's, pairs with C's, you know, the base pairing rule will help you write the complementary sequence. So, if you're writing the complementary sequence, you start from, so this is the original sequence running 5 prime to 3 prime. So, complementary, it will be, you start from 3 prime to 5 prime. Good? But in an exam, in an exam, you are given this sequence and you are given G, G, A, up till G, A, C. You know it's going 5 prime to 3 prime. When you are given the answer, the complementary sequence will be written for you in the 5 prime to the 3 prime end as well. You should be able to, 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 to know that, okay? From the options you are given, if it's not labeled 5 prime to 3 prime, you know that all the options you are given, all the nucleotides you are given, are running from 5 prime to 3 prime, okay? Complementary. So this is running 5 prime to 3 prime. The complementary sequence will be running anti-parallel 3 prime to 5 prime. But if I'm going to write it in an exam, I will start writing it from the 5 prime end of the complementary sequence. So the first nucleotide you will see, okay, for the options I will give you will be a G, the next one will be a T, the next one will be, I won't go in this direction. I hope you all get what I'm talking about here. Okay, so if you are given the messenger RNA, you should also be able to predict the sequence of the amino acids after translation, knowing that we have three possible reading frames. So let's take this question before we go on. So nature has chosen 61 codons that may specify an amino acid, but we have less than 61 tRNAs. We have less than 61 tRNAs. 1% of you, you are saying because codons on messenger RNAs form loop structures. Form loop, loop structure, structures. The loop structures, you are thinking, if you, if you start thinking about loop structures on your messenger RNA, I think you are going back to transcription the hairpin structure that will signal the end of transcription. That is what you're thinking about. That's not what we're we talking about, translation here, okay? 
His stones mediate the interaction. No, his stones, we're talking, his stones, his stone proteins, you wrap your DNA around your histones to form your nucleosome and so on and so forth. C, the ribosome may specify the tRNA. That is not true. 15% of you, you are telling us that the ribosome wobbles on the messenger RNA. Is that the wobble hypothesis? Yeah. Don't be too quick. Eh? You have to be quick when you're answering your questions in an exam, but not too quick so that you just choose the first answer that looks like it's correct. Remember to go over the other options again. The ribosome does not wobble. There's no wobbling. There's no shaking. There's nothing during translation. The wobble hypothesis is telling us about the fact that you can have one, one um, tRNA can recognize different codons. For example, alanine has three codons. Alanine has three codons. However, alanine has one tRNA because of that non-traditional base pairing that can take place at the third position on your messenger RNA, on the third codon, on the third nucleotide of the codon and between the third nucleotide of your codon and the first nucleotide of your anticodon. Okay, because of that non-traditional base pairing, that is why we have less than 61 tRNAs. One tRNA may recognize multiple codons, as in the example I gave you of alanine that has three codons with only one tRNA. And this is possible because of the wobble hypothesis, non-traditional base pairing. All right. So there are some compounds that affect the synthesis of protein. We have diphtheria toxin that inactivates elongation factor 2. EF2, remember I told you we have that in eukaryotes. In eukaryotes, it helps in translocation. So if the uh, diphtheria toxin helps in forming, uh, in adding ADP ribose, okay, it adds ADP ribose to EF2, then we will no longer be able to have translocation. Trans translation cannot go on in eukaryotic organisms. Good? So this is how the diphtheria toxin affects eukaryotic organisms by ADP ribosylation, ADP ribosylation of elongation factor 2 in eukaryotic organisms. For uh, some other organisms like prokaryotic organisms, for example, we can look at inhibition of initiation by some antibiotics. Streptomycin, for example, can prevent the assembly of the ribosome by binding to the 30th subunit. 30th subunit, when you say 30th subunit, you know we are talking about prokaryotes. Streptomycin can bind to that 30th subunit so that the ribosome cannot assemble. You cannot have the large ribosome coming to bind to the small subunit to form the 70th subunit. So that way we can have uh, antibiotic inhibition. We can use antibiotics to target these organisms. Okay? We can also have antibiotic inhibition of elongation. The first one, we are inhibiting initiation, the formation of the 70S subunit. We are stopping it. For the second part of this slide, we are talking about inhibition of elongation. Tetracycline can block elongation by preventing amino acid tRNA access to the A site. So the, the tRNA that is carrying the incoming amino acid cannot have access to the A site because tetracycline will block it. Erythromycin will block the 50S subunit of the complete 70S ribosome. So the 70S uh, ribosome has been formed. Initiation is complete, okay? And erythromycin blocks the 50S. Remember the 50S has peptidyl transferase activity 
and erythromycin also stops translocation, stops translocation as well. Chloramphenicol and other antibiotics can inhibit, inhibit peptidyl transferase activity in prokaryotes, in prokaryotic cells. However, if the concentration is very high, chloramphenicol can inhibit uh, uh, peptidyl transferase activity in the mitochondria of eukaryotes. Chloramphenicol generally, at, 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 if the concentration is not too high, it will only affect the prokaryotic cell, inhibit peptidyl transferase. But if the concentration is very high, it will start affecting eukaryotes. Good? So you have to, when, if you have to use chloramphenicol, you have to be careful with the concentration you use. Cyclohexamide inhibits eukaryotic peptidyl transferase activity as well. That means you will never think of using cyclohexamide as an antibiotic for your eukaryotic patient. Good? You cannot use it. But why are we mentioning it here? If you cannot use it as an antibiotic because it affects eukaryotes. You can use it in the laboratory when you are carrying out experiments. You are doing tissue cultures. You are working with yeast cells, for example, which are eukaryotes. Or you are working with human cells, tissue cultures. You want to see what happens. Okay? You want to in inhibit um, elongation in the eukaryotic cells. In the petri dish, in the laboratory, you may use it. But to treat your patients, you cannot use cyclohexamide because it inhibits peptidyl transferase activity, just like chloramphenicol. Can you use it to target cancer? Okay, the question, can you use uh, cyclohexamide to target cancer? If you do that, if you use cyclohexamide to target cancer cells, it will affect both your rapidly dividing cells, which is what your cancer cells are doing, multiplying excessively, and it will affect translation in other cells. So you don't want to do that. Good? So you don't want to use it for cancer. Poromycin causes premature termination of translation in both prokaryotes and eukaryotes, so you don't want to use it for your eukaryotic organisms as well. There are other an antibiotics as well that affect translation, but these are the few we have listed here. So let's take a closer look at these antibiotics. We have streptomycin that will bind to the 30S subunit, and once uh, streptomycin binds to this 30S subunit, the large subunit cannot come and bind to form the 70S subunit. So we stop initiation of translation. And we have tetracycline that can interact with the 30S subunit Okay, and it will block the, the amino acid tRNA from coming into the A side. That is what tetracycline does. Once it blocks these 30S subunits, the amino acid tRNA that is carrying the incoming amino acid cannot come into the A side. That is what tetracycline does. Pepti uh, chloramphenicol will inhibit peptidyl transferase activity peptidase transferase activity in the prokaryotic cell and in, the, in high concentration in the mitochondria of eukaryotes. Promycin affects both prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Okay? It resembles amino acyl tRNA and it will accept the peptide from the P side. It will accept peptide from the P side causing inhibition of elongation. And once it accepts the peptide at the P site, then there's no site for us to form a new peptide bond. So this will cause termination in both prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Erythromycin irreversibly binds to the 50S subunit, okay, blocking translocation. Once it binds to the 50S subunit, we cannot have translocation. 
That is what erythromycin does. Diptera toxin will uh, form ADP ribose. It will attach ADP ribose to EF2 in inactivating elongation. Okay, so this is what the different uh, compounds we talked about, that's what they do. I have a question for you before we go along. I think I have two questions as a matter of fact. More time because it's a little bit more complex. Which antibiotics inhibits peptidyl transferase activity just like cyclohexamide? Remember, we talked about chloramphenicol, okay? That has the same, it inhibits peptidyl transferase activity in prokaryotes, and if the concentration is very high, that is when it starts to affect the mitochondria, mitochondria of eukaryotes. So the answer, correct answer is chloramphenicol. Next question. What does this form of tetracycline resistance allow to occur? What does te tetracycline do? It prevents the tRNA that is bringing the, the amino acid from binding to the A side. So when you have tetracycline resistance, it allows the binding of amino acid tRNA to the A side. That is the correct answer. So post-translational modifications. After translation, we can have modification 
of the polypeptide that is formed. Remember I told you that methionine may be cleaved off. Some other things can happen. We may have all these types of modifications, zymogen activation, serine phosphorylation, glycosylation, lipid anchoring. There are some other post-translational modifications, but we'll talk about only these ones listed here. For zymogen activation, a zymogen is a proenzyme. That means it's an inactive enzyme precursor. To make that zymogen or that proactive, uh, proenzyme, to make it active, you have to cleave it. Okay? It's a protein. It's a protein. It is not active unless you cleave the protein. So that's what happens. You cleave it and it becomes active. So the zymogen is a proenzyme that is activated upon cleavage. Okay? We have some zymogens that are involved in apoptosis, programmed cell death. Some are involved in coagulation. And some zymogens are also involved in digestion of protein. In this example here, we are looking at zymogens that are involved in digestion. An example of a zymogen is trypsinogen. Trypsinogen is a zymogen. It is a proenzyme. It is inactive. To make trypsinogen active, you have to cleave it, and the enzyme that will cleave trypsinogen is called enteropeptidase. Once it cleaves trypsinogen, it becomes trypsin. And trypsin will help in digestion. It will help in cleaving the peptide in digestion. We have another zymogen, chymotrypsinogen, cleave to form chymotrypsin. We have proelastase, cleave to form elastase. So these are zymogens, proenzymes that are cleaved to make them active. Another type of post-translational modification that can happen to activate a protein, to make a protein active, is phosphorylation. Phosphorylation, adding the phosphate group. Okay? Kinases are enzymes that can phosphorylate. So serine and tronine, for example, can be phosphorylated. In this example, we have serine. We add the phosphate group right here. So this H goes and the phosphate group is added. This is phosphorylation. This is a type of post-translational modification. Another type of post-translational modification is also shown here where we have tyrosine, phosphorylation of tyrosine by insulin. Okay? The insulin receptor is a tyrosine kinase. Insulin receptor is a tyrosine kinase. That means the insulin receptor you have is a kinase that is able to add phosphate group to tyrosine that you have on your insulin. Good? So this is showing us phosphorylation of serine, adding the phosphate group to serine, or adding the phosphate group to tyrosine. These are post-translational modification. We also have glycosylation. Glycosylation. Here we have serine. We have the addition of the acetylgalactosamine. Okay? All glycosylation. Adding it right here at this position of serine. Or N-glycosylation. N-linked glycosylation as shown on asparagine. So these are types of post-translational modification. Another example is lipid anchoring. Lipid anchoring. We have some proteins that have to interact with the membrane in your lipid bilayer, in the lipid bilayer. The protein on its own cannot bind to the membrane. To be able to bind to the membrane, you have to add what is called the phenacyl group. So in this example, we have the cysteine, by the time we add the phenacyl group to the cysteine, this is called phenacylation. This phenacyl group can bind to the lipid bilayer so that the cysteine can interact with the membrane. Okay? This happens, lipid anchoring, a type of post-translational modification can take place in 
proteins that interact with lipid, lipid bilayer. This is the RAS protein, RAS protein. Okay? It's to be able to attach the RAS protein to the plasma membrane, which has the lipid bilayer, you have to attach it to the phenacyl group, for example. Okay, so th this is the protein itself. Attach it to the phenacyl group, and the phenacyl group can bind to the lipid bi bilayer so that the protein can interact with some other compounds that you have in the cytosol. So lipid anchoring is another type of post-translational modification. Proteolytic processing of insulin is a type of post-translational modification, proteolytic processing, cleavage of insulin. So the first time when we make the polypeptide that will eventually form insulin, it is called pre-proinsulin. It has the N-terminal and the C-terminal. On the N-terminal, we have a special sequence called the signal sequence that will signal, will give the cell the signal to know that this polypeptide that has been translated, this polypeptide, we have to carry it into the rough endoplasmic reticulum. So it carried, it's carried into the rough endoplasmic reticulum. The signal peptide is cleaved off to form what is called the pro-insulin. The pro-insulin has uh, these two uh, uh, sequences as well as this. It's just a straight sequence, but it has different parts to it. This part coded orange, this part coded blue, and this part coded light, light blue. Okay, it has these three parts. This is the C peptide. This is called pro-insulin. And once this pro-insulin is carried into the Golgi apparatus, we have further cleavage of the C peptide. The C peptide is cleaved off. We are left with what is insulin. It's this insulin that will now be secreted, okay, that will help us in the metabolism of glucose. Okay, the life, the half-life of C peptide is longer. It has a longer half-life. That is why you can find out if somebody is producing insulin by estimating the, the concentration of C-peptide the person has because the half-life of the C-peptide is longer. So if the person has C-peptide, you look in the person's plasma and you, have, you see C-peptide. C-peptide is there because the person is producing insulin. But if you give your diabetic patient insulin, you are giving your diabetic patient only this part, only this insulin. Good? You are giving the patient only insulin without the C-peptide. So the patient that is not producing insulin, you give them insulin, we find only this. If you look in their, in their uh, plasma, you will not find C-peptide. Only those who are actively producing insulin, you will find C-peptide. So this is showing us, we have uh, your DNA where that is transcribed to form your messenger RNA. Your messenger RNA is, is, is capped and polyadenylated, transported into the cytosol where translation will take place. Okay? Translation, you see the ribosomes translating the messenger RNA, and it has the signal sequence that will say, okay, this uh, polypeptide has to be taken into the rough endoplasmic reticulum. Once it's taken into the rough endoplasmic, plasmic reticulum, translation continues forming your pre-pro-insulin, pre-pro-insulin. And then the pre-pro-insulin is formed, the signal sequence is cleaved off, and once the signal sequence is cleaved off, we also have the carriage of your pro-insulin into the Golgi apparatus. Once it gets into the Golgi apparatus, we have the cleavage of the C-peptide. And once the C-peptide is cleaved, the C-peptide as well as the insulin itself will be excreted or will be secreted into the, uh, into the plasma, okay? To be secreted into the plasma where your insulin will 
help in the metabolism of glucose and your C-peptide is there to tell you that you, if you estimate, you will see the C-peptide even a long time after the secretion of insulin. It will tell you that the person is actively producing insulin. Okay? Insulin is secreted in the beta cells in response to high blood glucose. So this is what happens. These are post-translational modifications. In this example, we talked about cleavage, proteolytic cleavage. Okay? It's a type of post-translational modification. So this is insulin derived from a single polypeptide. Derived from a single polypeptide pro-insulin, a pre-pro-insulin to pro-insulin, and then you have insulin as C-peptide. So this is insulin that helps in the metabolism of glucose. It has different amino acids. Okay, The take-home is that your, your um, proteins, insulin for example, has different amino acids and because you have cysteine here and cysteine here, you can have the formation of the disulfide bond. These two disulfide bonds are linking the A chain to the B chain of your insulin and you have another cysteine here and cysteine here. This makes your insulin to have a special three-dimensional conformation so that it can be able to carry out his biological activity. Before you go, can you answer this question, please? All right, thank you.